Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guest today is Brian Chow, who has also written under the pseudonym Cactus Chu. His substack is From the New World. It's cactus.substack.com. And he's also written for Tablet. And uh, Brian is particularly interested in bureaucracies, decentralized networks, and internal order. So I think we'll try to cover all of that. And just to start out, you recently interviewed on your podcast, which is a part of your Substack project, um, Curtis Yarvin. Yes, and yes, I he also <laughs> recently published published a, a somewhat controversial um, piece on his Substack, Gray Mirror. That he did. And so I'm, <laughs> so I, you know, perhaps to start off, uh, since it's, uh, you know, everybody's, everybody's been uh, talking and beefing some about this recently. So, you know, perhaps um, if you could just uh, kind of go over like what some of what you discussed with him and then how that relates to the piece that he published and just what your take on, on, uh, you know, this controversy is and, and his, uh, his recent interventions. Yeah, so your audience probably knows a fair bit about this already, but Yarvin has this philosophy of basically wanting conservatives or reactionaries, people who oppose the current order to basically get in line, not necessarily uh, strictly behind him, but behind some kind of leader, or as he says, monarch. And part of this means essentially not going for, you know, typical conservative policies. And if you think about what's been happening in the Supreme Court, this is the opposite of what Jarvin wants, because in his view, what happened is that conservatives got power and then immediately spent it in order to put forward a policy that might be good for someone who is conservative leaning, but in terms of the balance of power gives more power to uh, left-wingers or to the establishment. Now, it's with this context that he writes this article uh, about, about hobbits and elves, where he basically compares liberal strivers or aristocrats, oligarchs, whatever term you want to use, the kind of legacy media establishment, democratic political establishment, uh, as these kind of elves and the either conservative counter-establishment or regular people as hobbits. And that's essentially what the hobbits need to do is they need to ally with uh, dark elves like Yarvin, who are kind of revolutionaries, who are willing to give them more power. Now, this ran into a lot of confusion because for, I think, two reasons. Number one is because people really don't get the metaphor. It doesn't make too much sense, to be honest, not even to me. And... The other thing is that they just don't agree with the message as well. And of course, the message might also not be true. And so you end up in this situation where there's a cloud between the two, where there's people who are just sniping at Yarvin for one or the other, possibly for the opposite reason. And I think that there's just a lot of uncertainty around this for 
really no unnecessary reason. So it's with that context that I'll, I guess I'll talk about the interview and I'll talk about the, uh, I'll talk about the article that I put after that. So what happened in the interview is that I experienced this very differently because the interview was recorded two weeks before, before Yarvin put out his article. And so I don't think the Hobbits and Elves thing was really available publicly anywhere. Uh, I think for most people, the interview uh, on my, on my Substack came out uh, a day after Yarvin put out his article. And so from, from my perspective, from what I was, what I was dealing with when I was talking to him, I basically asked him this question about specifically how he was trying to win over the kind of old establishment or convert the old establishment to serving under, in his words, a monarchy. And he has this very specific quote that I thought was kind of funny. So he says, good question. You're convincing perhaps different people in different ways because different people have different kinds of roles in a transition. Now that's about the vaguest answer you could give to that question. And then it's right after that that he talks about the Hobbit and Elf stuff. Well, of course you go on a podcast, everything you talk about is going to sound made up anyway. That's just kind of the vibe of a podcast. But I, I think that is with this context that it really does end with basically the discussion about irony and how he was going through it earlier. That really makes me think that maybe he just came on this podcast. He thought of this metaphor and he said, okay, we're going to roll with this metaphor. And then eventually converted that into an article. So I think in terms of the metaphorical aspect, this, the writing style aspect, it's just... It, it's just people taking it more seriously than they have to. The, the broader question, though, is about two things, I think. Should conservatives get in line and should there be room in Yarvin's hypothetical next regime for these sorts of uh, legacy establishment people, so long as they are working under a kind of order that they're serving a kind of monarchy, serving basically conservative ends, or uh, whether that would be uh, very destructive. So, I mean, how much of the how much of the background discussion do you want me to summarize? Because I can give my opinion on this, and I'm not sure if that would have that would reference too many things for your audience. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, no, I, I think we should, um, you know, give sufficient context uh, just for people who might not have been following every detail of the discussion. So, you know, I'm happy to let you take it away on that. Yeah, so I think the biggest tension between Yarvin and the populist or the traditionalist reactionary right that he's found himself in an alliance with is that he fundamentally views all of all of the aesthetics or all of the actual uh, actual conservative values as something that postdates the revolution. Uh, in in his words, you only want to build power until you have so much power that it's not even going to be contested. And this, this makes sense in some, in some interpretation, right? If you're dealing with a kind of military battle, you don't really want to, uh, you don't really want to abandon your positions until the entire war is won. And I think that was how 
he would analogize politics to this. The problem with this is that in politics, conservatives vote or they participate, they act, they contribute. And this is not just conservatives, actually. It's, it's just everyone. They act because they have some sort of inspiration, right? So conservatives are doing things not because they want power in their own ends, but because they want to do conservative things. And so if you're just spending time and time building power, I think that both in the strategic aspect, they would say, this actually makes no sense. You're not gaining that trust with conservatives. You're not creating that kind of flywheel where people understand that you're actually helping them. And two, of course, you might not actually be helping them. You might be uh, simply using them. You might not actually deliver for conservatives at the very end. So, of course, there are all these other problems with uh, with essentially this kind of biding your time strategy. And I think it's with that kind of context that there are all of these people criticizing Yarvin for basically not wanting to win, not wanting to at least use some of the power to just simply do conservative things. So another point that, you know, I, I think this whole controversy has resurfaced that, you know, I think, I mean, we can talk about Curtis a little bit more, but, um, you know, I think it also kind of opens out into some of the larger issues that you've written about, about bureaucracies and, and so on, is that, you know, he's, he's always had this very, um, you know, clear um, kind of background of, of coming out of essentially, you know, the, the very um, institutional milieu that he's kind of made his name by critiquing, right? That he's, he, you know, his, um, his family were basically um, state functionaries, right? Of the, like the state department, um, you know, he comes up through very elite educational settings. Um, and so he's, you know, he's very much of the kind of world of the, you know, what, what he's called the cathedral informed by it, right? And so, I mean, perhaps this is, you know, a relatively simple point, but um, I think something that's always been a little bit ambiguous is, uh, you know, on, on one hand, he's kind of, um, and, and I wouldn't say that he's initiated it. I mean, it obviously has a long uh, tradition that we can get into, but he's, he's brought a certain kind of institutional critique into the sort of right, um, you know, right-leaning intellectual world. And, um, and yet, you know, and, and so that's been kind of useful to people on the right from all sorts of, um, you know, perhaps divergent uh, kind of ideological persuasions. But, you know, nevertheless, I think something that people um, perhaps don't quite, and, and you know, I, I would put myself here as, um, you know, <laughs> What exactly does he think about, um, I mean, he, he often seems to talk as if he still thinks that basically the, the people who form these elite bureaucracies are in fact highly competent and admirable, right? And that, you know, they, they, they have certain, you know, value that needs to be um, kind of retained in any future regime, right? And so, you know, there, there's kind of some sense like that, he doesn't necessarily regard these people as enemies in the same way that other people he's allied with uh, might. Is that, well, do you think that's he a simply doesn't, right? right? He doesn't, yeah. yeah. He, he, he says so explicitly on my show. He says yeah. uh, someone like Ezra Klein, th this is his words, so he specifically mentions Ezra Klein, someone like Ezra Klein, 
uh, he's, he's someone who would serve the regime in any context, basically. So if he was a Nazi, he would be, or if, if he's in Germany in the, in, in uh, the 30s or 40s, he'd be a Nazi. Uh, if he was uh, if he was in the Soviet Union, he'd be he'd be a communist. So basically, that's all of these people are essentially malleable and as close to a blank slate in service of power as you can get. Whether that is actually true of Ezra Klein or any particular person in the present, you can that's that's unknowable right you you can't really tell that until we actually have a significant shift in political power but i i, I would say in yarvin's defense there are these kind of perennial aristocrats who for example the types of people who were aristocrats in tsarist russia played their cards right and ended up as uh as party members in the communist party and then ended up as oligarchs even post post the Soviet Union, oligarchs in Russia post Soviet Union. So there are these types of people and these types of families that do indeed play this role. Now, the question is really one of not just communication, because I think that I think that takes it too lightly. It doesn't take it seriously enough. But one of orientation one of of community building of solidarity where i think yarvin rightfully is seen as detached from people with right wing aesthetics and i say rightfully because even if he has right wing aesthetics he prizes above that right he writes this explicitly in his um, in, in his articles he writes this explicitly that he believes detachment is more important than all of that. And if you're thinking of this in a kind of military strategical way, perhaps that's right, right? You, it, it might not actually be the case that, that constantly expressing right-wing aesthetics is the correct way to, is the correct way to create a strategy or a movement or an aristocracy uh, that, is aimed at taking back power. But what you end up with is that you end up speaking and operating in a context that is basically alien to everyone else who, call, who cares about this. So I think that I think that Yarvin would say, and actually I, I, I don't think I should, I don't think I should speak for him in this way. But I think that one interpretation of his articles, my interpretation of his articles, is that everything should essentially be secondhand to power. Because if power, uh, if this is not the case, then you will just lose. Right? Then you will not have the power in the first place, and all of your conservative aesthetics they will not make their way into uh, government. As I talked about earlier, is that necessarily true? Uh, I, I would say I, I disagree with that. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. But this creates a kind of alienation from the people who just want the right-wing aesthetics and, and quite frankly, want it sooner than the, rather than later. Right. And yeah, I mean, I think I, this also makes me think of, and I, and I talked about this in a, another episode with um, Jake Siegel not long ago, but 
Mm. I mean, it, it's interesting in relation. It was a good to this, episode. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's interesting in relation to these kind of, you know, we're thinking like thinking here of the Vanity Fair, uh, you know, the um, James Pogue piece and, you know, this sort of, um, you know, J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, you know, who are, um, you know, portrayed there as kind of, you know, in a sense, kind of Yarvin disciples um, and, you know, this kind of new mold of, of, um Republican politician. I'm a little bit skeptical of, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, I tend to think, and, and I guess my, my skepticism of this project, you know, I framed it just as, you know, my, my guess is this will look about, you know, it, assuming these guys are elected, like it'll look uh, five years down the road, pretty similar to how the supposed like socialist um, insurgency within the democratic party looks right. That it's, it's like a little bit of aesthetic, you know, spicing up and, and, you know, but, but essentially they will, you know, be assimilated into the functioning of the, the party apparatus. Um, and, you know, won't, won't necessarily look that different from many of the people who are, who are already in there, but, you know, I, this also, you know, this whole question of right-wing aesthetics, I mean, clearly, um, that, you know, if you just kind of look at, I mean, so policy-wise, they've made some clear distinctions, particularly thing advanced on like, Ukraine, you know, basically saying, uh, you know, I, I don't give a shit about Ukraine. And, uh, you know, I, the thing I really care about is like opioids in Ohio, right? Um, so that's right. isolationism, you know, that's, like, nationalism, and populism, yeah. right? So yeah. that's, that's pretty significant. But nevertheless, I'd say aesthetically, the way they are, you know, presenting themselves to voters does not differ significantly from, you know, pretty much anybody else. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I mean, perhaps, and, and I kind of want to, you know, we should, we should move on to talking about bureaucracy. Um, but I'm curious, you know, you bring up this point about right-wing aesthetics, but could we pin that down a little bit more? Like what, um, what are these aesthetics and what's their relationship to things like policy and so on? Yeah, certainly. And I'll, I'll try to keep this and this a bit shorter, but I mean, I'll, I'll just talk about it a, a little bit about honestly, how I, how I kind of grew up and how I came to these things is that I think that right-wing aesthetics holds most dearly this idea of particularity, right? This is something that Yoram Hazoni uh, talks about. And of course he's involved in his own internal conflagrations, but I think this idea of particularity is right, which is that you have a home, you have a place, you have a family. Uh, in many cases, you have a country, right? And all of these things are things that you hold dear to you. They are things that you uh, defend instinctively. They're they are not, and the instinct is part of it, right? These are not like okay, I I see that I see that we've created a lot of prosperity, so it is in my interest to defend the United States of America. That's that's not what that's not what the right wing is about. It's about this is America. It's been great in many for many people. Uh, they've been proud of it for many many generations. Uh, for for me, I'm also proud of it. I'm I'm very happy to be American. But uh, you you have a situation where a Yarvin esque critique just kind of bounces through because this is just not this is just not on the level of consideration. This is not something that we're actually this is not actually something that we're kind of strategizing about. It's more of 
it's more of a sort of default setting that we all have for how we engage in life, how we discuss with each other. Now, of course, if you spend enough time talking to someone, as Yarvin did with me, as I have in, in many cases, you can say, okay, let's actually question those assumptions. But if you're trying to create a, a movement, if you're trying to create uh, a kind of background aristocracy or a kind of basically insurgency, right, or shadow government, then you need to have you need to have something that is realistic to the assumptions that people already have. If, if you don't have that, if you don't have something that squares the circle between what you want to do, which is to have this uh, power, power building, strategizing thing that isn't aligned with just the way everyone is going to go about and live their lives. And there, there's no point in doing it in the first place. It's just incoherent. And I think that's part of what Yarvin is missing. And, and, and you know, like part of what um, Vance masters, like they're, they're not, they're, they're not having a dominant, easy walk to the walk to the end zone, right? They're, they're having a bit of a tough time. And I think this is part of it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess it, part of what's interesting to me about this aesthetic dimension is how, um, how malleable it can be. Right. Um, you know, that especially having kind of lived through the, the sort of Bush administration era, right. Where you had a certain version of that, um, basically, um, enlisted in this project of sort of imperial of kind of aggressive imperial expansion and, um, you know, I mean, the, so, so, you know, part of what's interesting is that like the, the sort of national populist, um, you know, marshalling of, of, uh, you know, these kinds of, um, aesthetic commitments to, you know, place and locale and, uh, tradition and so on. You know, I mean, part of what's interesting is that, you know, basically the, the, the very people who are sort of their enemies now, right. All these kind of never Trumpers, um, as well as the whole kind of, um, neocon kind of blob, um, from that, you know, that was extremely dominant sort of in the GOP, uh, 15 years ago, you know, the, the aesthetics are not appreciably distinct. Right. And so that, you know, I, I, again, I mean, these are, I, I guess I would say something like this, this collection of sort of signifiers that can be, you know, deployed in different ways for different ends. No, it, it's but much more important than that. It's, yeah. it's so much more important than that. I think the, the okay, thing that yeah. everyone misses here is that you take like a bunch of, uh, aesthetics and you basically do them you, you do them superficially right uh, I, I think that what this is something that I think is very actually left-wing it's it's fundamentally deconstructionist right that's actually what you're doing is you're taking these things and looking at them in their component parts yeah and this actually like doesn't make sense right it's like trying to it's like trying to sell like uh, like a like a piece of glass and like a CPU and like a battery to, to people and saying like you know you know like these these parts they're very useful they'll they'll make a phone if you put them all together right that's, that's actually not how people that, that actually makes no sense right? right because people don't want to assemble those things people don't want to pick and choose right if you if you take like I'm sure if you take like an Apple phone and you take uh, some components of it and you take an Android phone uh, or not necessarily Android, but you take like a Samsung phone and you just try to mix and match. There, there are a lot of cases where that, that just won't work, right? You'll just break the entire thing. And I mean, people talk about marketing or people talk about running a company in terms of product market fit, right? And product market fit is not something that you get 
from basically Steve Jobs talked about this. It's very difficult to actually engineer a product through focus groups and through uh, basically surveys, right? The, the market doesn't the the market isn't assembled by by smushing together all of these individual signifiers or individual components even the market is formed kind of organically they're formed by basically like basically like shuffling around a product having a bunch of smart people hoping they get some kind of insight and eventually you get the iphone and it's a huge hit right so i i think that what we've really lost and i don't just mean we as in kind of people on some part of the right i mean we as in america or the west or even all of politics like i don't think china is particularly good at this either there is no there's no message mindset fit there's no set of behaviors values lifestyles that that all put together leads to people living in ways that they both um they both feel deeply agree with their politics and also create a productive and also create basically just a better world right this is something yarvin is kind of yarvin is the guy who's who's into like some kind of tech product that people are just not ready for right he's the guy who's into like ar right now i i don't even know if actually like yarvin does seem to be the guy who, who would be into ar uh, to be honest I, I don't know if he is actually into ar in specific but essentially like you, you know you get all these people and there's like smart people right? They're smart people who make products that eventually people like, but, you know, they don't have the product market fit. They don't have, they don't have the set of circumstances and the set of really like non, non traits, right? This is something that I really want to get the entire sort of, especially the Yarvin wing, the kind of people who really think this I think this is something that I also encountered in myself as well, that I was going through a lot when I was thinking about these problems is that, okay, I'm going to do the system design, right? I'm going to figure out, and we can talk about that earlier. I have a lot of uh, similar things. I think I have maybe a Yarvin-esque approach to some of these problems as well, but I have this approach, which is going to be, I'm going to do the system design. I'm going to start explaining to people, and then I'm going to try to convince people of these ideas in the abstract, you know? And that is actually not how any of this works. That, that makes no sense. That, that's, that's like, that's like, once again, trying to sell the component parts of an iPhone, right? This actually doesn't make sense. You need to throw that, throw your ideas out there. You need to circulate it through the ecosystem. You need to do, you need to be actually getting to the point where there there are people who care it's not just you who cares there are people who care not because they're paid for you they're paid by you not because they have some sort of status to gain but because they like fundamentally care and that's that's how you know there's a message there's a message mindset fit and that's how you and like if, if you look at the path of every uh every startup that that's also how how they to, to kind of bring it back to the yarvin camp that's also how they do like that's also how they get product market fit right they keep they keep kind of rolling the dice until they get um and iterating until they get a product that really lands and so i think this entire approach to to kind of like we're gonna do the system and then we're just gonna like figure out someone who can sell it like i, I think that's completely wrong yeah that makes sense um I w- okay let's uh let's pivot slightly um i i had a, a a very old and famous quotation i kind of wanted to 
run by you in light of what you've uh, written about bureaucracy, midwits, and yeah, I love these institutional types of incentives, which, you know, I think will get us less, you know, kind of away from the realm of, let's say, public politics and into the realm of, you know, the functioning of institutions. Um, but my question, which is kind of a, a political framing of the discussion is, um, what are your thoughts on, so, you know, famously back in, I think the 50s, uh, William F. Buckley, founder of mm. the National Review, stated that he would, and then repeated the statement various times in slightly different formulations, that he would prefer to be ruled by the first 2,000 people in the phone book, he later said Boston phone book, than the faculty of Harvard University, right? So yeah. I'm kind of, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on that uh, statement, was was Buckley's preference, um, you know, justifiable? Um, did, and and I'm curious, you know, also how this fits into. I mean, because one thing that's kind of curious about this is, you know, if you've ever like seen or listened to William F. Buckley, he uh, he doesn't exactly come across like effectively and aesthetically as a populist, right? He's kind of this. Um, yeah, he he is an intellectual, <laughs> right? He, he exactly. is. Yeah. So. So the statement, which I mean, part of what's interesting about it is it um, it comes from somebody who is, uh, you know, probably not going to um, kind of blend in with those first 2000 people in the phone book um, if he shows up at their bars or whatever. Um, but nevertheless, you know, he, he's famous for having said this and for having repeated it numerous times. And um, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that statement and, you know, perhaps how it connects to uh, certain things you've written about extensively. Yeah. I mean, this is actually a very different question than I think is the subject of my writing because back in the day, Harvard was actually, I, I think in Buckley's day, Harvard was actually at least competent, right? This was before the replica replication crisis really started stirring up. This was when you still had regular actual innovations, actual technological innovations. Uh, coming out of especially Harvard in particular, uh, in the world of, uh, as Kiel would say, in the world of atoms, things that were just obviously uh, making people's lives better. But in terms of governance, I think what's, what it is there is that there's a profound misunderstanding of, of how normal people want to live their lives. Right. And I, and I would say, I mean, we're both more of the Buckley-esque, I think, conservative than really. Actually, let me let me take it up this way, because I think that there are a lot of things that are new about universities. But here is one that isn't, which is that and I'm not alleging any kind of conspiracy or anything. I think this is just how how this ended up is that. Uh, is that universities are kind of a unique way of creating class stratification and essentially making, like, this is something that I was thinking about earlier, that instead of making organizational competence for a kind of working class movement ever possible. Because if you think of, uh, if you think of the traditional labor movement, if you think of the orators, the organizers, these were really competent organizations, right? The, these were... Um, they were much closer to a Yarvin-esque monarchy. They were much more about leadership, about um, like planning these strikes were not easy, right? Uh, and so the only way that that happens is that you have people, and of course, because of uh, reversion to the mean and because of because 
intelligence is not completely heritable, you had a lot of people who grew up in these really poor circumstances, in these kind of unlike intelligence stratified circumstances, who learned about the world that and, and had family, had friends, all of their friends were living in this world, right? All of their family was living in this world. Their family might have been living in this world for many generations. And they grew up around this and they saw, man, this sucks. And even if they're more intelligent, even if they could become a member of the aristocracy, they're like, no, I'm going to organize a fucking union and, I, and I'm going to give the people, I'm going to help the people who I grew up with, who I see as fundamentally equal to me, uh, to, to create a better world for themselves. Uh, now you can be for or against union politics. I think it's become something quite different nowadays than it was then. But I think that that's something that's fundamentally admirable. And when you have this kind of university circumstance, and I mean, I'm, I'm living through it now. Uh, actually, this is something that has been made less bad by, by kind of uh, classes being online. But it is, it is a kind of culture shock that, especially if you're someone who is more comfortable communicating in abstract idiom, in, in a kind of intellectual frame, right? As I think you could say is fair for both of us. I, I, so I, I'm certainly more comfortable doing this. It's something that very rapidly alienates you from the world that you grew up in. This is a really long answer. So to point to, to what Buckley is saying, even if you are very intelligent, even if you are someone who is, uh, who is able to solve a lot of technocratic problems, I mean, like, look, okay, like in terms of at least his day in Harvard, I think that the types of people who you want putting rockets up, right? This was the 50s. There's still like a lot of competence uh, admissions and selection there. The types of people you want, like building rockets or uh, honestly, like securing our oil supply, like that might still be, it might still be better to have, uh, to, to have Harvard uh, supplying some of those people, at least in the 50s. But when it comes to organizing the social routines of the world, the, the way of life, it, when it comes to way of life questions, this just doesn't make sense. This is just like, it is, it's not like, it's not that hard to organize your own way of life, right? It's not that hard to organize, like taking, taking care of your family, going to uh, a nine to five and what people, uh, and, and it actually takes like a very strange circumstance, which I think university is to, to move people out of, out of the environments that they grew up with and, and end up really alienated from basically being able to provide a kind of stability that I think most uh, ordinary people are actually looking for. And, and, and so like, this is a very uh, long end run of saying like, okay, you actually just can't have, you, you can't have this kind of stratification and expect them to, to make good decisions on these way of life issues. And I, so I think on those types of issues, Buckley is completely right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, there are several interesting things about this quote. Um, I think that, so there was a recent-ish piece by um, Nate Hawkman that's, uh, that was about Buckley's, um, 
you know, book uh, on Yale, about Yale, right, which is kind of his breakthrough uh, book that he wrote when he was very young. And, you know, part of what's interesting in relation to the right's kind of current critiques of academia is that, you know, in a sense, it's the opposite, right? He's actually attacking the ideal of academic freedom because he thinks it's, you know, enabling these professors to kind of, you know, abrogate their responsibilities to the nation and, and society, you know, basically of instilling specific, you know, essentially Christian values in, you know, uh, emerging elites. And so, you know, in a sense, his, his problem is uh, that there's, there's way too much freedom for faculty, right? Um, and, and, you know, this has to do with the, the shift in that the universities are undergoing in this period. And also just this sense that, you know, these elite institutions, which have had certain functions, um, you know, over the course of American history are, are, are beginning to shift in terms of who teaches there and also who, um, and what the va you know, values and ideals of, of the people who teach there. And the point at which, you know, university professors are becoming a kind of, um, you know, particularly from the perspective of the right, a kind of, you know, dangerous and harmful influence on society. Um, and, and so that's sort of shifted now, I mean, in part because instead you have a tendency to kind of lament the decline of academic freedom because it's allowed for these kind of orthodoxies to, so these stifling orthodoxies to coalesce, which, you know, not only let people uh, preach atheism or whatever at Yale, but, but also, you know, essentially let them prevent anybody else from, you know, not adhering to atheism and whatever other, uh, you know, modern doctrines they, uh, they have come to embrace. So, you know, I think part of what's interesting here is, um, you know, the statement could, you know, you could imagine it being something like it being repeated today by um, someone on the right, but I think the valences of it are actually quite different. Um, now, the other thing I was kind of interested in. Yeah, this is like the JD Vance. Uh, this is like yeah. the JD Vance, the universities are the enemy. Right? right. And he was, you know, and he's quoting Nixon. Right. So, you know, he's mm. he's he's harking back to this earlier period, too. So there is that continuity, even though the universities themselves, as you indicated, have changed in, in all sorts of very significant ways, you know, in terms of who goes there, who teaches there, what they teach. Um, but also, and to get into your, <laughs> into yeah, your, totally. your discussion, <laughs> like, you know, the, the competence of the people admitted to and, uh, you know, employed at the universities. Of course, you know, at this point, another big, another significant difference, which you know, goes into something else you've discussed is the the huge explosion of administrators, right? Of, you know, that that actually the 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 main type of employee is now not a faculty member but a but an administrator. Um, yeah, yeah. So we've so, been dancing around this. I think it's time yeah. to just like hit it head on, yeah. right? I, I talked about I talked a little bit about earlier how at least in the fifties it might be the best idea to take Harvard people when it came to rocket science or when it came to getting oil. Uh, maybe it's still true for rockets, right? I don't know how, how Elon is hiring, hiring, but certainly when it comes to oil, you'd probably have even worse. Now, are, are these people just completely uh, in, incompetent? Are they just worse? Are they uh, are they suffering from uh, some kind of like mass, uh, mass hysteria? Uh, well, probably. But it's also just true that if you try to organize them in, in really like any way, right, in any kind of institution or establishment, they are 
just not the same types of people. We have this kind of idea, we have this attachment to the idea of a Harvard grad, right? And we think of a Harvard grad today as the same as a Harvard grad, like as like a Harvard grad in the in the 50s. And this is just not true. And you see this with administrators, you see this with this whole kind of really fabricated economy around consultants, around middle managers, where you have you have a hammer in search of a nail. And that, that hammer is basically people who have managed to climb social hierarchies, uh, managed to climb these kind of silly status games that you see at any kind of elite university, but do not actually have the competence to whether it is procure oil, whether it is maybe to build a rocket, whether it is to be an actual functioning employee of, say, Google or Apple. And there's a very specific reason for that, uh, which is that the university has gone from a place that is mostly populated from what I would call a kind of talent elite, right? And these people might not have uh, aligned values, might be out of touch, as Buckley described, but they were people who could get the job done. They were people who could, you could ask them to uh, to build a rocket. You could ask them, like, these were people who were uh, maybe in the Apollo project. These are people who are maybe in, uh, who were in, um, the Manhattan Project, and, and even like the, the kind of uh, public work stuff uh, that followed, these were all people who were put into the institutions. Now, that, that happens when there's a very specific kind of game that's being played, and I, I don't take the word game lightly here. I mean, when there is a task at hand, get to the moon, build a nuclear bomb, win the Cold War, uh, bring, bring electricity to all of these parts of the country, that where people were very easily uh, measured on whether they succeeded or not. Either there are electricity in these houses or there aren't. And you look at the jobs that Harvard grads are going to and you can just look at them and you can wonder to yourself, where the hell did these go? Like as someone who is a McKinsey consultant, is that person being tested on whether at the end of the day they have electrified Kansas or whether their rocket has reached the moon without killing anyone? No. In fact, what are they tested for? And you think about it, you keep thinking about it, maybe try to do a list, do some Googling, interview some McKinsey consultants. I know one or two for sure. Um, how would these people get fired? And you can't really think of anything if they were just obliquely, just like blatantly like ignoring their boss, not doing anything at all. Yeah, sure, maybe they get fired. But what is like an event? What is a failure that could end up with them getting fired? And it, it is really hard to come by. And so you have all of these uh, situations, which I call mid-selecting situations, right? They have some kind of lower bar. You do have to get into these prestigious universities. You do have to, you know, take the right bird courses. You do have to play the right status games. And that requires some kind of ability, right? But the people who are truly able to get things done they're not being distinguished there. They, there's, no, there's no water there. There's no substance. And so they go elsewhere. 
some there's still a home or I don't know, there was a home for some of them in Silicon Valley. Maybe there still is. There's some parts of Silicon Valley that are still working. Uh, there, there might be a home for them on Substack, right? I think they're, they're actually like, I, I'm increasingly able to convince people with a lot of technical background to write about semiconductors or write about oil or write about markets. And I, I think that these people are like doing a good job as well. And that, that Substack does allow you to be tested, although there are other components as well, like just how good are you at communication, right? Uh, which is certainly a skill. And in all of these cases, you have essentially filtering out people from the top as well. So what legacy institutions have become is that they've become places, homes that are fundamentally for midwits. They're for people who optimize on the social hierarchy, who play these status games, who essentially know all of the know all of the right people, but who are not actually able to be fired for incompetence. And this creates an environment where the people who are good at, of course, these kinds of status games, who are who are really kind of middling middling people, they're going to want to play the status games. And when they do that, they make the institutions more of a home for themselves. What they are actually good at, right, is they are good at this kind of manipulation. And you see it now being expressed in more and more dysfunctional organizations, more and more just complete failure and more and more subversion of accountability, whether that accountability is the form of, you know, firing people who are failing, whether that's in the forms of great inflation and not flunking people out who, quite frankly, are not competent, who, who are not earning, who are not proving the skills that are necessary to, say, have the same Harvard degree in the 1950s, and who are creating these kind of loyalty oaths in the form of wokeism or in the form of uh, ESG all of these kind of social movements, they're, they're all the same type of deal. So you look at this, you start with the fundamental contradiction of where are the people who are good because they don't get fired for being bad? Where have those people gone? They've just like that vanished. And who has replaced them? And you lead them. And this leads you not only to the answer to that question, but it leads you to the answer to the question of why does everything suck? Some of what you just said reminded me of this, um, of Peter Thiel's discussion of uh, the distinction between definite and indefinite optimism. Mm, yes. you know, that, that essentially this, um, you know, that this scenario you're describing in which, uh, you know, uh, cognitively sophisticated people have these specific tasks that they're supposed to perform, getting a rocket to the moon, um, you know, uh, building an electricity grid from scratch, whatever. And they're, um, you know, they are, uh, you know, essentially um, their advancement depends on actually being able to, you know, show that they're, that they have done these things successfully, you know, and so the, in other words, the, the kind of, um, you know, political economy of the, the era that we're thinking about, um, you know, it, it, it sort of in, you know, concrete sort of, uh, career building terms, you know, kind of reinforce this attitude of definite optimism, right? Where there were these specific kind of material ends that um, were supposed to be achieved and the people who were best able to achieve them were, um, you know, were rewarded for, for helping do so. You know, whereas today the, 
the sort of ambient, I mean, you know, it's been interesting because I think, you know, he wrote uh, about the, you know, the book came out maybe 10 years ago, thereabouts, um, zero to one. And so, you know, he really, was kind of describing an ambient um, mood of indefinite optimism. I'm not even sure about the optimism part at this point, but really just this idea that, you know, th that um, things will, you know, continue to progress without there needing to be particular uh, projects to bring that about. So, I mean, one thing I'm kind of interested in and from your perspective is, you know, I think you see there as being a, a, a way that, as you call the, as you refer to them, incumbent institutions kind of, you know, have an, an internal logic by which they devolve into the state of, you know, as you say, being sort of dominated by midwits. Um, and so does that also mean there's a sort of, you know, the seeds of this kind of collapse into indefinite optimism or even worse are sort of, you know, built into the, the evolution of, of these institutions? Well, yeah, I think in economics, you have this very well-known result of essentially institutional decline. And they don't know exactly what, what causes institutional decline. I think most people would agree at least somewhat along my thesis. It's not too dissimilar. And Steve Jobs actually said things that are quite similar uh, with regards to A players and B players, right? You let too many B players on the team, then everyone becomes a B player uh, because they're not competing over, you know, being, being the best they can be. And you see the same type of circumstance, basically, whenever you're asking yourself, whenever you're asking yourself basically the opposite question, right? Uh, or where has everyone gone? Well, they've gone to startups and what has happened to the startups of the past day? Well, Google used to be a startup. Facebook used to be a startup. IBM used to be a startup. Uh, and even before that, like uh, at, at some point, JP Morgan was a startup, right? And all of these situations, in all these situations you see at the very beginning, they're actually doing like very impressive things. They're doing huge organizational accomplishments, technical accomplishments, and so on. And so I would completely agree that there's this, there's this decline here and the decline probably will happen at some point or another. Although certainly you just look at even just comparing Google and a lot of these other companies, Google, I think, has outshined the rest of them in being able to maintain some kind of internal order there. So, I mean, another interesting uh part of your discussion of midwits, you know, sort of has to do, I mean, you, you brought this up briefly, but um, the, the, the sort of ideological incentives that uh, come about as, as part of this situation. And you bring up the historical phenomenon of Lysenkoism, which I've heard, you know, referenced in relation to various uh, sort of recently fashionable doctrines. Um, my friend, right, this is Emmett becoming Penny a wrote big something thing about now energy Lysenkoism recently that, you know, it's basically about mm, yes. the kind of renewables um, delusion. And I'm, yeah, I mean, I, th I think this is a really uh, interesting point to, to bring up. And, you know, as I understand it, your argument is sort of that there's a, you know, as part of the rule of midwits within these institutions, Lysenko, a kind of Lysenkoism necessarily becomes obligatory. Yeah. So first of all, let's talk about who Lysenko was. Lysenko was the Soviet um, biologist, um, agriculturalist. Uh, and you can, you can kind of hear the scare quotes in my voice because he was not a very good one. Uh, so Lysenkoism starts with Soviet doctrine, class solidarity, um, equality, 
and uh, puts the science, subjugates the science under it. Uh, so, so what does that mean? Well, it means basically saying, uh, let me just actually look at the article. There's, there are some specific uh, quotes or translations from Lysenko. Uh, well, you might say that genes don't exist because they're a barrier to progress. You know, they're, they're stopping us from achieving equality. So, you know, can't, that can't be the case, right? Genes, genes they definitely don't exist. Uh, you might say uh, Western scientists, they're, when they give you theories, they're, they're imperialists, they're imperialist oppressors. And so we're not going to use these. Uh, we're not going to use these to grow crops, by the way. This is what he's talking about. And of course, this sounds very familiar. I think those exact quotes, uh, I chose them because, well... They're not and they're not necessarily buried in the past. They're quite hot to the touch, because you have the same thing nowadays with people progressing, professing standardized tests as, for example, a barrier to progress, uh, as um, as fossil fuels are right. And so, even when there is explicit consequences everywhere, when everyone is feeling the consequences, when we're dealing with inflation, when we're dealing with oil, uh, recently. Actually, there was a very good headline. I talked with Yarvin about this. Uh, this headline, I forgot in what legacy publication, but it's basically who decides we're in an recession and we're in a recession? Eight white economists. And of course, and of course, you have to look at the underlying issue here. Like, do you, do you really think that if these people didn't declare, declare that there was a recession, that suddenly everyone would be able to be able to afford food and gas? Like, of course not. You have to be actually very self-delusional to think that. But that's what happens when you're in a Lysenkoist environment. And I do, I think it's actually a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing that more people are learning about this. Of, of course, it's not a beautiful thing itself. A lot of people starve to death. But it's good that people are learning the historical context around this and that we've seen this picture before. We've seen this movie before. We've seen what it looks like when you start from your ideology and try to create and, and try to create crops or quote unquote science or basically any approach to the real world that is downstream of your ideological assumptions. Yeah, I mean, to answer, two, two other examples that come to mind are, um, first of all, I mean, this I you know I haven't delved a great deal into the whole Sri Lanka situation, but it does seem that. You know, in, in quite a literal sense, um, you know, we, there was a kind of Lysenkoist project involving agriculture there. And, you know, oh, it, was, yes. it was hugely, you know, supported by these, um, uh, I mean, you know, interestingly, in a, in a somewhat imperialistic way by. Yeah, know, certainly. I'm like, very comfortable um, with saying that. With by people like uh, Peter Buffett and, you know, basically um, it's it, it's a clear and straightforward Lysenkoist project where these kind of, you know, um, ecological, ideological frameworks, um, you know, have led to the embrace of these policies that turned out that have turned out to be quite disastrous. Um, so yeah, and you look at Netherlands now, right? They just keep, do they just don't learn. Just guys, stop doing this, please. Right? You're going to starve people to death. And you can see in, in, in Sri Lanka, how that's going, just like, 
please guys, don't do this. And, and of course, you can't really reason with them because by the time Lysenkoism takes over, you're you're not in that you're not in the fight anymore. You're already out of the arena. You're all you've already been been knocked down and out, or you weren't even trying, or you didn't never had a chance to begin with, right? Because what happens in these circumstances is that there's a tension between explicit order and implicit order. I think this is one of the biggest ideas that I've found is that essentially there are two ways to live your life. There's try your best and deal with the consequences. And there's who cares what happens. Let's cover it up. And I think most people live somewhere in between, right? If you, you try your best and if you make a mistake, then maybe you try to downplay it. Maybe you try to try to fix it before anyone finds out. Uh, you rarely see people go to the extremes. When you go to the first extreme, some people who go to the first extreme actually do a lot of good, right? People who are, who are completely dedicated to doing one thing and are kind of, you know, the, the kind of corporate speak is like radically honest, right? Honest about everything that they do. Uh, and that can be good in some circumstances. But we're talking about the other extreme here. We're talking about when people end up in a situation where no matter what happens, the best thing that they do is cover up. The best thing they can do is lie. And really at this point, they're not really capable of doing anything else. And of course, there are individual differences here. Some people are better liars. Some people are better at actually doing the thing. Some people are good liars who are also terrible at doing the thing. And what we've created when we have this system of ideological conformity is we've chosen all the second type of people. We've just taken the people who could, say, have good oil policy. Um, they're probably working in Silicon Valley now. They're probably they might be working. Uh, they might be working some other job. I don't know. They might be writing on Substack. Uh, Shout out to Doomberg. I think we should put Doomberg in charge of our national oil policy, but uh, they're writing on Substack right now. Um, not just them, but it would help. And we've taken all of these useless social climbers and we've put them in positions. Most comedically, it's like Pete Buttigieg, right? Like Pete Buttigieg is the, is the head of the Department of Transportation now. And of course, the Department of Transportation, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to make sure all of the ports and the shipping lanes work, right? How have our ports and shipping lanes been doing now? Uh, if you know anything about this issue, they've been doing absolutely horribly. And it's basically solely due to all of these obscure government regulations that should have been suspended since the pandemic begun. Or, or many people would say should have never existed in the first place. But when you have basically professional actors in all of these positions, well, everything is going to suck. And it's going to suck so much that the organization is going to be almost transparently dedicated to hiring more professional actors who can keep up the act. And I think that's exactly what you see now in a lot of these HR departments, certainly in government, in uh, ed schools, especially, I really hate the ed schools. And we can go into each of those examples if you want. I'm not sure how long you want to spend on this. But I mean, the funny thing about this is that a lot of the best examples weren't available yet when I wrote this article, right? So this is just aged like fine wine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Um... <laughs> 
I, the Buttigieg example, I mean, also returning to the uh, McKinsey point is interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's a professional you know, actor to um, Department of Transportation Pipeline. Maybe yeah. the president soon. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, so, uh, you know, something else and, you know, that, to, to yeah. not be too unfair to like Biden. Right. Like you look at you look at Romney, you look at like, I don't know, um, you look at like Paul Ryan, like these are also professional actors, you know, like not a, it's not a one-sided problem. Right. I mean, you talk about, um, you know, that we, and in terms of these kind of Lysenkoist, um, you know, the, the ways that institutions kind of um, default to a sort of Lysenkoist ideological mode. I mean, you do bring up, um, I think you sort of bring up supply side economics and kind of uh, this like, you know, tax cuts always pay for themselves sort of, set of dogmas, which, you know, I guess not, not, I mean, that you don't hear about as much about them lately, but certainly for a long time, they were, you know, the, these sort of institutional shibboleths on the right, you know, in terms of both, you know, being part of sort of networks of um, think tanks and things like that, but also, and, and, you know, media journalism and also um, a, you know, and also political office. Um, so, I mean, I point at those yeah. as fundamental, uh, as fundamental, uh, or as kind of fundamentalist religions, right? You, you, this was actually, so the tablet article was converted from two articles I had on my Substack, one of which was called the freer, the bureaucrats, the freer, the people, right? Of course, this is a reference to, uh, the, the kind of, uh, libertarian or, uh, anarcho-capitalist line of the freer the markets, the freer the people. And of course, this is a, this is a very low resolution picture. This is a kind of political slogan where you are just going all in on one thing. You're going all in on markets. And that actually just makes no sense. I don't think markets market fundamentalism is actually the same. I think that it's actually much more intentional. I think a lot of the people there knew what they were doing uh, much more than the kind of midwit ideologies. But mm-hmm it's kind of the same kind of dedication that it's inspired, right? And you see the situation in, uh, you see the situation in uh, in the example that I had was the uh, Glenn Youngkin race, right? You had a situation where the most obvious thing, if you know any parents at all, right? Parents, they want to shape the future of their kids. That's kind of the point of being a parent. Every parent wants this. So when you say, when you say, I am loyal to the teachers, I'm loyal to the teachers unions over the parents, parents shouldn't have a say in what happens in the classroom. There's no reason why you should ever say that politically. And the only way you get to a point where you say that politically is when you have a fundamentalist, basically religion, right? And, you know, the the libertarians or the right wingers say freer the markets the freer the people the democrats say the fear freer the bureaucrats the more power i can give to the bureaucrats the freer the people and of course this is actually even more contradictory there's not even the there, there's not even the the kind of vague imitation of of something that's true there right i'm sure you can convince some people i mean i mean they were actually quite successful the republicans were quite successful in convincing some people that the free of the markets to free of the people uh, but when it comes to bureaucrats it's just so obviously false that 
you have to be in such already such a poor political situation within your party for this to even be like a consideration for this even to be a talking point. Something this reminds me of from a non-US context is Brexit, where, you know, the, the sort of entire response, you know, which essentially involves a similar thing, right, to what you're referring to in the article, which is, you know, essentially a movement to, um, you know, assert some kind of popular democratic control over various institutions, right, that had been removed from that control. And, you know, the response was, I mean, <laughs> what was so bizarre, you know, the EU is basically founded by these kind of, you know, gray suit sort of corporate bureaucrats and has never been anything else than that. But, you know, the, um, it, 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 the idea of kind of losing this attachment to this entirely bureaucratic organization was so emotionally traumatic to, you know, essentially the British sort of left PMC you know, that, that it sort of led them to, you know, really um, engage in this kind of state of emergency politics to try to prevent it. Um, and so, you know, the, the desperation with which they were clinging to, you know, essentially a regime of bureaucratic oversight, or they were, they were basically saying, you know, the most traumatic thing to us is to be removed from the oversight of these um, obscure sort of of unelected bureaucrats in Brussels. So it, you know, it, it, it just seems like sort of a parallel example of how you, know, you, you have this kind of explicit alignment of um, much of the left of the political spectrum with bureaucracy per se, right, is, is seen as, um, and, and is seen as, you know, the only force that can provide, you know, essentially order and um, Stability and, and essentially protection from the rabble, right? Protection from the kind of, um, you know, uh, plebeian. Right. This is something that, that's um, incredibly important recently. Because I don't think people really understand the psychology here. People maybe assume that it's a kind of power hungry psychology, it's a hatred, it's a psychology that is very, really sneering at the middle class uh, or the lower class. Uh, in their eyes. And I don't think this is quite the case. You talked about this a bit with Malcolm Cheyune, and, I want, and I'm having him on the podcast soon as well, on my podcast soon as well, uh, where I want to talk to him about this, the same thing. But I see it as rooted in a very deep insecurity. And you don't need to go very far to see this being talked about explicitly. Right. The keyword here to look for is social anxiety. Now, what the fuck is social anxiety? Social anxiety, you go into a situation, maybe a party, maybe you're just hanging out with friends and you just don't know if people are going to approve of what you say. You're walking on edge eggshells. You want to please everyone. If there's a negative reaction, you you just withdraw. You you want to you want to lock yourself in a room. You're you're suddenly terrified. You knew this was going to happen, man. This was terrible. Um, some of some of your listeners are gonna say this and say, man, this sounds ridiculous. This sounds like a mental illness. Well, it is a mental illness, but it's also quite a common one. Um, one a more general version of this. Uh, called, well, Generalized Anxiety Disorder. Uh, in John Twenge's book, iGen, she referenced, a, she referenced a survey, quite a large survey that showed that 60% of Generation Z uh, has this condition. And, and I can attest, I'm a young person who doesn't have this condition, but I know many people, many people who I'm friends with as well, many people who have this condition. And you just move five seconds away and you look at 
you look at Malcolm's diagnosis of what's happening in politics, right, which is the desire for intermediation, which is the desire to, for someone to come in the middle, whether it's between you and Joe Rogan on, on when you're listening to him, between, uh, between the, labor, and the laborers and their bosses and these kind of middle managers, these HR departments, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, the desire to inter- for intermediation, right? The desire for middlemen, right? Being like pathologically pro-middleman to me is an expression of the social anxiety because the worst thing, the worst thing for someone in social anxiety is, is to be in a situation where no one else has social anxiety. If everyone in the situation has a social anxiety, they can even bond over it. They can, ha- or they can play the same kind of status games and so on and so forth. If everyone else is just thinks that what you're doing is ridiculous and are just going to say whatever they want, as most normal people do, then that's terrifying to them. They don't want that situation. They want to hide from that situation as much as they can. And when they do that, they they can't really run away. Right. It's, it's sort of inevitable that you end up in one situation or another where you're forced to confront the regular worker, the, the ordinary person, the, the working class dude. And when you, when that happens, these types of people, well, like they just can't have that, right? They, they want the filter bubble. They want to be free from these types of potential interactions. And in fact, the only way that they can do that is to impose this kind of totalitarian uh, this totalitarian like censorship regime. So yeah, I, I don't see this as something, I mean, ultimately, right, pra- practically its effects on reality are quite sinister. But I would say that in terms of this being any kind of plot, any kind of, any kind of uh, scheme, I don't, any kind of really like conscious idea from any sort of elite, right? I think that this is a complete coincidence that they're just saying like, oh man, I can't believe our luck. There are all of these kind of like mentally ill foot soldiers for us. Right, and I mean, this ties into another thing I, I particularly appreciate about your work, which is that you, you know, you, ha- you have this kind of critique of, I, I suppose, more conspiratorial modes of accounting for these phenomena, which sort of converges with certain things I've written as well, where, you know, when basically when people notice what's happening in these institutions, you know, one response that's maybe the most common one is to try to, you know, come up with some like genealogical narrative where you say, you know, here's some idea, here's where, here's where we can find it first, uh, you know, uh, introduced into discussion, and then we can sort of see how it gradually kind of took over. And then often this is, you know, often are this, you referring me to the more... to the hit book "Cynical Theories" by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, sure. that's, man, that's one man, example. Foucault I mean, is the reason yeah. why all of these yeah. English departments are acting like third world countries. It's definitely that's definitely the reason. It's not that they're they've reverted to being third world countries. It's right, definitely right. Foucault's fault. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's you know it, it it's um. So it, it's this kind of genealogical method that then often tips over into a kind of more conspiratorial one. And I mean, I saw a version of this, I think, in Tablet recently that, you know, a friend, I mean, I sent him the article and then he kind of critiques it on these grounds. That's like about the Pritzker family, right, uh, who one of whom is the governor of Illinois, you know, a huge amount of um, inherited wealth. And basically, they, you know, they've, they've um, invested a great deal in all of these enterprises 
associated with, um, you know, sort of transgender rights and um, as, as well as transgender medicine and different medical schools and so on, right? And so, you know, you can do these kind of things where you, you know, notice that they um, have like provided funding for all of these programs and have also, you know, influenced all these organizations they donate to to like change the language and their mission statements and the ways that people are now debating, um, you know, where you, whatever, you can't say women anymore and so on. And so like, you know, that is part of the story, but, and, and I wouldn't say that's, um, you know, it, like observing those things can be useful and not conspiratorial, but, you know, I think the, the point I get out of your work is the need for this kind of, um, you know, analysis of institutional dynamic of sort of institutional dynamics that, you know, emerge as part of these processes that don't have any particular sort of agents in charge of them. And, you know, that, that unfold in a decentralized way, even though, you know, various specific agents and actors may, you know, contribute to them in perhaps outsized, um, in perhaps outsized ways compared to others. So anyway, I mean, I'm just, you know, I, I'm, what I've gotten out of your work is, is an attempt to um, grasp these logics, you know, in terms of how, in terms of how institutions work and, you know, through this kind of more decentralized analysis. So, you know, I guess one question would be, um, you know, when we're trying to do that also, what's the role or is there a role for, you know, looking at the interests of particular agents, you know, especially in, a, in an era of like, you know, uh, billionaires being able to exert a great deal of power. Um, so I don't know, I'm just, I'm curious about your take on, I mean, first of all, just, uh, you know, how would you describe that approach? And then, you know, is there sort of a, <laughs> how, how do we talk about the Pritzker family or, you know, favorites like uh, the, you know, Soros organizations and so on. Yeah, the, well, I'm just looking at, I, I'm looking at this uh, article right now and there doesn't seem to be anything to, or, or anything at all that's kind of wacky about it, right? They're just docking, excuse me, they're just documenting publicly available information. And so, so actually there, there's a kind of trick that gets pulled uh, mostly by, and by kind of left-wingers where, they look at things that are publicly planned and that where they where the right wing looks at things that are publicly planned and left wingers call that a conspiracy theory. This just makes no sense. You see this a lot right. with the Soros stuff. And of course, there are ideas that he's doing whatever he's doing because he's Jewish, whatever. Um, I don't think that's particularly important. But the fact that he is uh, he, he is he has donated to Chase Boudin and other kind of uh, other kind of really terrible DAs is just like, it's just true, right? It, it's, in the, it's in the public record. He made these donations. The, the money went from this account to this account, right? It was, it was, it was filed publicly with the government. Uh, it, it's well, not a conspiracy the, theory at all, right? Well, it, then it's the just left like does the same thing, right? When it's, I mean, when, you know, the, the left does the same kind of analysis, right? When they're, I don't know, uh, tracing the Federalist Society's influence on jurisprudence, right? And- yeah, yeah. So a lot of these situations, <laughs> so, political influence is passed or like political influence is made 
uh, and and people are not really like hiding it, right? That's that's what I'm seeing from this article is that he is that like the Pritzker is are are very public with this, and, right. and I'm sure like JB Pritzker is someone who is not necessarily someone who's pretending to be like not in favor of these politics. He is he's like a, from what I know of him, right? He's a pretty like left wing guy. He he's pretty like confidently left wing, right? So so this is not like a conspiracy. Right? This is not like hidden. There's not a lot of kind of assertion of things that we don't know for sure. All of these things are things that are known and things that they have kind of publicly talked about and are very happy to talk about. And and in the left wing framing are like good things, right? In, in their framing, yeah. they're happy to talk about them because they're actually in favor of them, right? So yeah, in, in that case, I don't really have any opposition to this because, I mean, it's just true, right? Like, <laughs> I think no one is really opposed. I mean, well, some people on the left, the kind of intermediation people, they're opposed to some information, even if it's true. But I, I don't think anyone, I think you're, you're right to say that I'm skeptical of some, some like, quote unquote, conspiracy theories because I just think they're false, right? I just think a lot of the time people claim things that they're not too sure about, that they don't have tons of information about. And sometimes, and a lot of the times there are contradictory information for, and I think that people should, should just be like a lot more patient before jumping to conclusions. But in the case of something like, I don't know, this article, which I'm only like briefly scrolling through, right? All of these seem, they all seem to have their records cited. The, I, I, I don't really doubt that these donations never actually happened, right? Like, yeah, I would just say that in general, you want to have more of a more patience when you're when you're deciding these things. I should well, say I another that, thing. Yeah. Uh, before I should talk about the appeal to these kind of quote unquote conspiracies, even when the facts aren't there, right? Which is that there is an appeal of a simple narrative of a good and evil of basically saying, if we get rid of these people, everything will be good, right? There's an appeal in that kind of simplicity and that kind of underestimating the problem. Uh, for example, if we just got rid of, if we just got rid of uh, like postmodernism or Robin DiAngelo or whatever, then all of this wokeness would go away. That's a bit of a character. I don't think a caricature. I don't think anyone actually believes that. But, or for example, actually, if we just got rid of Bill Gates, then we wouldn't have vaccine passports anymore, right? No, actually, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of left-wingers, they all want vaccine passports. Getting rid of Bill Gates will not solve your problem, right? And all these people, like, genuinely, they just actually, they actually just want, they actually just think this is a good idea, right? And so you end up with this scenario where I think it's very attractive to have an easy solution, and so people are going to jump to those conclusions. And well, it's kind of, it's just kind of our job or anyone who wants to actually get anything done, it's their job to basically say like, okay, here are, we, we want the same thing as you, right? We want a reasonable policy. We want th the same goal as you, but it's not that easy guys, right? And to have that kind of approach. Uh, and I don't think, I, I think most people who, who are, uh, who are quote unquote, who believe in like quote unquote conspiracy theories, uh, e even ones that are false, they're very willing to have that conversation as long as you're not kind of like coded as an enemy. And I think that just, just being like very careful with that and having a kind of alternative explanation, right? Having an explanation 
that you believe is closer to reality, I think that really helps. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I really like the point that, um, you know, part of the problem with these, a lot of these types of explanations is that they're, I mean, the explanations are, you know, they, they, and in some, you know, they may draw on valid information. They're usually insignificant, in, sorry, insufficient to account for the full kind of scale of whatever the change is that's being analyzed. But at the same time, as you're saying, they, they also tend to underestimate the nature of the problem and therefore, you know, lead to solutions that, or, or responses that will necessarily be inadequate. Now, I mean, my take on like someone like James Lindsay is, you know, ultimately he's, I mean, and not, not to say that you and I are doing the same, but he's, you know, he's um, making a career. And I think the stories that he tells. Wait, I, I have, of, I have some reason to believe that he actually believes it. Yeah. I think, I think he believes it. Um, right. I, I, I agree with you that he believes it. But I think it also it is it is convenient to him to believe basically that, you know, the only problem is that these ideas were around and no one is pushing. No one was pushing back against them. And therefore, what we need is people to aggressively push back against them. Um, And so that means you should, you know, uh, donate to his uh, projects. I mean, it's, and and I think, you know, he does believe it. Um, I don't, you know, I think that's partly because he's not that sort of sophisticated of an analyst of things, but he also sort of has reason to stop there because as far as his own project is concerned, it's sufficient to, you know, essentially justify what he's doing and justify him, you know, asking people to support what he's doing. Your sort of prognoses are not... (laughs) You know, it, you you actually conclude the tableau piece by saying um, that the Amer- you know the American status quo is not really in that much danger. It's actually incredibly stable. Um, so, I mean, one idea to finish on might be this uh, issue of stability. I mean, and I have sort of a, does that seem of interest to you? Yeah, sure. And because I I like to I mean. <laughs> I've written a couple of things about, you know, Turchin's thesis, which I'm personally, I think he has some interesting observations, but I'm personally sort of skeptical of. Yeah, I'm very um, anti-Turchin. Yeah, there, there's so, a thread, there, there's a kind of yeah. duo thread where Hanania and I are just dunking on Turchin. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, so does that seem of interest to you or do you want to go in a different direction? Yeah, sure. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to really talk about was I have this, I have this critique of basically like universalist uh, ideologies. Most most recently, I've been really aiming it at liberalism with my critique of Jonathan Haidt and mm. uh, another article that I uh, have coming out about basically how the woke are kind of right about about safe spaces. Yeah, but basically, That's, yeah, that sounds good. Let's let's do that, and then we can go on to the to the stability thing to finish off. Does that sound good? Yeah, cool. Okay, so let's see, segue from James Lindsay to universalism. I mean, so here, here, I'll do this. Um, anyway, oh, yeah, so I mean, I guess that, that yeah, flows we, we really naturally. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have to go too much more into Lindsay, but, you know, he is, uh, he, he sort of begins as, you know, representing this classical liberalism. And in fact, many people who have criticized, and this is, you know, perhaps a split within the the sort of critics of wokeness or whatever, is that, you know, there is this kind of uh, classical liberal 
um, contingent, right? Of people like um, Jonathan Hyde, people like Barry Weiss, you know, who basically um, have a very um, high opinion of all of these institutions, you know, the media, the uh, universities and so on as they've historically existed and simply believe, you know, somewhat, I mean, I think Heights account is a little more nuanced, but, you know, often they seem to believe that they've just sort of been taken over by, and if you listen to like uh, many of Weiss's comments on the New York Times, you know, that they've just kind of been taken over by these contingents of young staffers who are kind of holding everyone else hostage, right? And so it's it's really kind of seen as this this sort of arbitrary, this somewhat ar historically arbitrary um, development, right? And so what we need to do is, in their view, you know, default back to these supposedly, you know, stable universalist values that, you know, kind of liberal values that that held sway, you know, before, I don't know, five years ago or, so, <laughs> or there, 10 years ago or thereabouts. So, I mean, you know, I think you have your own kind of criticisms of these liberal sort of universalist uh, critiques of many of the same phenomena that we've been discussing. So um, perhaps we could go into those. Yeah, you know, I've been kind of biting my tongue for a long time trying to get height on the podcast. And eventually I'm just like, okay, you know what? <laughs> you know what? I'm just gonna like, I'm just gonna like absolutely roast this. And I kind of have that fire in my belly now. And I had an article recently, which was exactly this, which was going over basically point by point, uh, reviewing his article in The Atlantic, a super viral article about, uh, titled like why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. And uh, it, it really is like just such a bad article. It, it His kind of intellectual history of institutions when they started going wrong. He claims they started going wrong when there was social media, when social media was being introduced and that's why you have wokeness and that's why you have uh, polarization. And this is just completely false, uh, right? Uh, to, to be fair on the polarization point, he does admit that it starts a bit earlier, but he still attributes a lot of our current problems to social media. And it, it, it's just it's just a completely false telling of history, which has no which matches with nothing in the kind of in in the factual reality. And I started thinking to myself, how does someone tell a story like this? Uh, for example, he he points at university decline as happening after social media. Of course, the peak of the replication crisis was uh, around was actually like a few years one or two years before social media was really uh, widespread and also before and also by professors, right, who were in their positions well before social media actually became a thing. You had all of these situations where really you had like proto-woke, I don't mean this in the James Lindsay sense, I mean this in, well, like people who we would now consider woke um, going on a tear in, academic, in academia, basically since since either the 90s or really the 60s when all this started and it was it's directly tied if you just look at it it's directly tied to affirmative action to the erosion or banning of standardized tests to uh, disparate impact becoming uh, becoming doctrine and this is exactly the same time you get this erosion of government bureaucracies and this erosion of um, of basically like executive agencies to function as well so you have all of, you have all of this decline that happens way before and in many cases decades before social media 
and Height just comes along. I'm not sure if he's just genuinely in good faith, like not remembering this stuff, not realizing that this has been a problem for a while. Uh, I, I'm sure if you're in a if you're in a very kind of high status place, uh, as I'm sure Height is, then maybe it takes a long time to actually get to you. But these problems have existed for a long time, and I think a kind of curiosity has to exist to actually investigate this. And this, of course, comes to me very sadly because how I got started in politics in the very first place is by looking at this kind of system design stuff, right? And I think something that separates my work from almost every other person who does system design, at least, maybe not Yarvin, actually, uh, but certainly anyone on the kind of intellectual dark web or center left or center right, um, anyone else on the center right, is that they really look at a universalist model of basically human nature, right? They're, they say like everyone is going to, everyone acts the same way. Oh my goodness, excuse me. They say that everyone acts the same way, uh, that, you know, if, if we just change the incentives, then all of the people will uh, behave differently. And that's what's happened here. That's why our institutions suck. You think about this for five seconds. So basically one of the assertions Height makes is that if it wasn't for confirmation bias, we would all be good at dealing with the pandemic. Like, what the fuck? You, you think about that for five seconds. You think about, for example, the Black Death. Social media was not around during the Black Death. Uh, you, you think about, okay, you, you might say, okay, that wasn't sufficiently post-enlightenment. Uh, post you think about the 1918 flu. Okay. Uh, social media was not around in the 1918 flu. And all of these situations, all of these problems, problem after problem that Hype points to, these are not problems of social media. In fact, they're not problems with institutions in the abstract at all. They're problems with people in the institutions. And this ties directly to what I'm talking about. If you have universities that are filled with the top quality people of like the top like 0.1% of people, then you're going to be largely immune from the sort of status games that happen when you get the replication crisis, where guess what, you follow this up with affirmative action, you follow this up with just a vast expanding of the university system in any case, right, you saw just the decline in the average IQ of people who are going, uh, going to university. And this is this is one metric, there are many others you could use. But you just see this like a, across the board decline in quality of people who are who are admitted to these universities because well you're adding more people to the university system right what else are you gonna do? And of course you don't get the same type of work. Of course you end up with having much stricter norms. You have you have to either police the status games much harder or you just let the status games take over. And that's because you're just allowing worse people into the institutions. And liberalism can't, can't really deal with this because they basically have a subtle blank slate ideology. Maybe if you ask them about like sex differences or whatever, they'll say, okay, yeah, sex differences exist. But you can't really even prod them that far on individual differences without undermining the entire ideology. And I think that that's what the Height article really shows. I mean, I mean, if I were to have to summarize that in one sentence, it was it would basically let's summarize this in one sentence. Living, trying to build institutions while assuming everyone is the same 
can never work. It's the same as trying to build, trying to, trying to predict a pandemic when you think everyone is equally able to spread it to every other person, right? Which is what we did, which is why our pandemic models suck. It's the same thing. It's yeah. this convenient assumption, in a way, like a Lysenkoist assumption, right? Yeah. Putting your putting your reality downstream of your politics or your ideology, and it is completely destructive if you want to get an accurate diagnosis of what is happening. Yeah, and I mean, I think this this brings me to to a question we can close off on, which is. You know, I think for a lot of people, this and you know, there's been various debates about you know, have we reached the peak, like peak wokeness, etc. Um, but you know, one one way of framing this would be kind of going back to the Lysenkoism comparison. You know, at least in the standard historical accounts, you know, the, the I mean, part of the problem was with Lysenkoism was ultimately that it you know led to all these famines, it uh, caused thereby caused regime instability and, you know, in, in the end, you know, forced significant changes on these, uh, these regimes that, that had embraced this kind of ideologically skewed, uh, framework. Um, so, you know, I think for a lot of people, there's this idea that, you know, that, <laughs> I mean, the, the example you just gave was maybe, you know, the, the, mo of, of just kind of this, this basic blank slate ideology, which, you know, some, obviously kind of of these classical liberals, notably Steven Pinker are known for disputing, but nevertheless, I think you're right to say it, it still remains, even if it's kind of, uh, it, I mean, it still remains practically kind of necessary, I would say for them to, to proceed in, in political terms from a blank slate perspective. Um, but, you know, obviously then the more extreme versions of this are in the realm of like, you know, by like, uh, sort of denying the existence of biological sex and things like that. So yeah, there you know, are degrees. One, yeah. The IDW is not the worst that it gets. Right. Not not by far. There, there's a lot of people who kind of sort themselves into that category. They're still my friends. But you know the okay. So I think for a lot of people, when they see these blatant kind of Lysenkoist doctrines, you know, taking over, you know, there is sort of this feeling that this can't this can't go on for too long, right? It, it simply isn't sustainable. And just as, you know, Lysenkoism ultimately had to collapse in the Soviet Union um, and, and brought about significant instability, you know, through its uh, promulgation. Um, similarly, you know, this, these are kind of canaries in the coal mine of like this whole, this whole house of cards falling down. Now, at the end of your tablet piece, you actually argue that, the American status quo is not really all that much in danger. It's actually incredibly stable. Um, and so I think this, this kind of, you know, goes against what a lot of commentary on this set of issues tends to predict, you know, often um, again, there, there are predictions that, that all of this will simply peak and then, you know, some crisis will be reached and things will default, you know, back to some more sane baseline. It seems like you're um, kind of pushing back against that and arguing that, you know, the state of affairs may not, um, you know, I, I mean, may be able yeah, of, to of course it's not gonna, it's not going to result in a sharp collapse. And here's why, right? Andrew Yang has the stat that he really likes to quote, which is basically that the approval rate for Congress is like, I think like 12% and the re-election rate is like 92% or something along those lines, right? So a lot of people hate Congress. A lot of people keep re-electing their congressperson. And you might ask yourself, okay, well, this sucks. 
all of these Congress people suck. And that would be your first mistake. Because of course, by definition, the Congress people do not do not suck at, at what their job is actually uh, what their job actually is, which is to get reelected. They very much do not suck at that. 92% of them do not suck at that. Uh, what is actually happening is that their job is different from what you thought their job was. And I think the same thing is happening here. You think that these institutions are supposed to serve you and that the only way that they can work is that they serve you. Your assumptions are just wrong. They do not serve you. Some of them, they never did serve you. And certainly all of them, they do not have to serve you to continue, at least the ones that are deeply broken right now. And so without any kind of, sh- of shift to the equilibrium, without any kind of significant disruption to this very powerful self-collecting system, you're just not going to make that change. And it should be important to say that you shouldn't underestimate midwits, basically. You shouldn't underestimate people who are somewhat adaptable, who are excellent at playing these social games. And that, that is a kind of skill. Not everyone is good at that, as, uh, as destructive as it is. And that means that you shouldn't underestimate them. That, that means that you shouldn't expect them to just you know go away one day. That's not going to happen. That actually doesn't make sense, right? If you were just going back in history and saying like, okay, what is the point where it's just gone too far now? It's just going to collapse. Like there's so many points where, where you could just say the same thing. And when you look at, and of course that doesn't mean that it's never going to happen, but I would say that you would, you would want to look at some actual indicators of what is actually changing, right? And of course you might say, all right, the Democratic Party is doing poorly right now. Inflation is going up. Oil prices are going up. Okay, those are all bad. They're not serving you. They're creating huge problems for you, in fact. And these problems are downstream of many of their decisions, right? And I would not, I would not disagree with that. I think that that's correct. Their job is not to serve you. I, I don't know how many times I have to say that, but the fact that things are getting worse for you uh, in many cases does not relate to the system dramatically changing. Now, you know what? Republicans might win back the House. They probably will. Um, maybe we'll even get a Republican in 2024. And maybe DeSantis will make things, you know, like 5% better. And, and that's not like nothing, right? 5% better. Like that's, that, that's I'll take that, right? But when people either catastrophize or fantasize about basically, I don't know, uh, America turning into either uh, a tyranny or like something that's, that's like fundamentally different than what it is now. Maybe you would characterize what it is now as a tyranny, but I don't know, most people don't. And they would catastrophize and say like Trump is going to take over and um, I don't know. Uh, and um Man, I can't even make this argument very well. Uh, but basically, Trump is going to take over and subvert all of these institutions that were definitely the thing that was protecting things from changing, and uh, he is going to uh, he, he's going to attack all of these minorities. Uh, I don't know, like, or or even on the other side, right? That okay, there's gonna, there's going to be like a communist takeover, right? Maybe this is more of a thing in Canada, uh, but less of a thing in the states. So like, there's going to be a takeover of communists. There's going to be some kind of revolutionary movement. There's going to be civil war. That's a big one. There's not going to be civil war. Um, 
And you get these scenarios where people actually, people are reasoning correctly. They're reasoning from the assumption, right? They're starting with some assumptions and they're moving forward from them logically, but those assumptions are just wrong. And I think at the root of all of those assumptions is that the point of these institutions is to serve you. They aren't. And unless you realize what the point of these institutions actually are, which is basically a sorting algorithm for midwits, then you're not going to realize why they self-persist and why it's so hard to get rid of them. I think that's a good place to leave it off. So thanks for uh, coming on. I will put your uh, Substack and the tablet essay in the show notes. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, tablet essay, Substack. Uh, that should be all. Also, my Twitter. Uh, I'm at uh, psychosart. Um, right. the, actually, I want to put this. I kind of want to put this on the record because I do think it's kind yeah. of funny. So there's this quote from David Shore where he's like, "You know, the world is not. You know, in the Obama campaign, we thought that if we were just really good at sorting algorithms and figuring out how to prioritize these lists, then we would then we would uh, run all of politics, right?" And David Shore goes on to say that, that that's not actually how things work, but uh, that actually is how things work, right? Every, everything actually is a sorting algorithm. They sort between people who are, they sort between individuals who are vastly different and you have to pay attention to, to, to those differences and what different institutions are selecting for. And uh, that's the origin of the Twitter handle. <laughs> Excellent. Well, people can follow you further. Um, thanks for the great discussion. And uh, perhaps we can talk again um, at some future date. Yeah, it'd be great. Cool.